Nexus PMG welcomes you to the Bigger Than Us podcast, which we as energy geeks lovingly refer to as the BTU. Bigger Than Us is a podcast that focuses on ideas that will shape the future of our planet and ultimately our existence. We will occasionally lean into energy topics because after all, it's the key to our collective survival, but we'll also explore other ideas and topics that we believe will have an impact that is bigger than us. And now, on to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Sam Ahrens to the show. Sam joined Lyft in 2018 as the Director of Sustainability, where he oversees Lyft's sustainability and climate impact efforts. Lyft was one of the first companies to join former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg's We Are Still In movement to pledge its commitment to the Paris Climate Accord. Most recently, in June 2020, Lyft made an industry-leading commitment to reach 100% electric vehicles on the Lyft platform by 2030. Prior to Lyft, Sam spent 10 years at Google as senior lead for energy and infrastructure, where he co-led Google's achievement of 100% energy in 2017, making Google the largest non-utility purchaser of renewable energy on the planet to date, with over 3 gigawatts of wind and solar energy under contract. Sam, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you, Raj? Sam, I'm doing very well, thank you. Sam, where are you currently located? Today, I'm calling from the beautiful coastal community of Sea Ranch, California. And where exactly is Sea Ranch? It is in the northwesternmost corner of Sonoma County on the coast. And how's the weather out there? Well, the weather's been a little weird. Uh, people probably have heard about these extreme, this extreme heat wave going on in California. Um, being on the coast here, it's been a little cooler, but we had these same very unseasonal uh, thunderstorms that come through here as well. It's very, very odd, actually. That is odd. We had a heat wave come through Dallas last week. I think we reached 105 or-ish over the weekend. And then Sunday evening, all of a sudden, there was a burst of rain. Temperature dropped by about 20 degrees, so we end up in the 70s. But it was a interesting change in weather here, too. So I think it's nationwide. Yes. And of course, as all things weather-related, the as they say, the fingerprints of human climate, human climate change are all around us. So uh, I'm, I'm glad we're having this conversation today. Absolutely. So Sam, I like to open my show by asking my guest the following question. If you were asked to share something interesting about yourself, what would it be? Niraj, I think I would say uh, I've actually lived in a couple different countries besides the US. I lived in Morocco for a year uh, between college and grad school. I was teaching math there. And uh, when I was a kid, I lived in France for about six months. And was that just with the family? Yes, when I was uh, when I was, I guess, seven years old, my parents, who are both academics, uh, did their sabbatical in Paris. So I went to school there for a semester, um, and then Morocco was uh, my sort of post college study abroad, which I didn't get to do while I was in college. So I did it afterwards. And how was teaching math in Morocco? You know, it was fascinating. Um, I mean, just culturally, Morocco is such an amazing place. The the people there were so warm and friendly and um, I just learned a lot about um, sort of cross-cultural interaction and also environmental issues. I mean, you know, it's, it's probably not a surprise that there are some pretty serious environmental issues there, and it kind of solidified my 
desire to go into this industry and, and try to make a difference because I saw, you know, in a way that I think is sometimes less visible in the U.S., uh, some, some really negative consequences of, of severe pollution in places. You know, I really agree with you there. I feel like a lot of times when we hear about climate issues, we tend to think in our direct environments and we think that the entire globe is homogenous and everything, everyone looks like us. I have family in India, in London, in East Africa, and I know that everyone's feeling a different aspect of climate change. My family in London are now telling me summers are hotter than ever. Now, I grew up in London. I remember how cold and rainy they used to be. But to your point, I think very often we forget the global impact of climate change. So I appreciate you bringing that up. Absolutely. Yeah, it really is a global phenomenon and it, it is different, manifesting differently in, in different places. It is. So Sam, usually I ask my guests to give a brief overview of their organizations, but you know, Lyft is a global organization. It's very well known. So instead of asking you about the organization, can you share a little bit about the conversations that led up to Lyft's recent announcement regarding the 2030 commitment? Definitely can do that. Um, and maybe just to remind everybody what that commitment was briefly, uh, back in June of this year, we announced um, a, a new commitment at Lyft to achieve 100% electric vehicles on our platform by 2030. Uh, and this, you know, this is a very exciting goal, um, certainly for, for people like me working on this directly, but I think for the company overall, that we're really raising the bar on ourselves to, uh, to, to do better, uh, to create uh, better outcomes, build back better from the COVID crisis. And, you know, the conversation really, I think you have to kind of rewind all the way back to 2018 when we first started talking about what we wanted to do environmentally. Um, we were one of the first companies actually to step up and become part of the We Are Still In movement, which supports the Paris Climate Agreement, meaning, you know, we and, and many other companies and, and uh, local and, and state governments are still in to the Paris Agreement. Um, and we, we knew, we always knew that we would have to do more. Uh, that, you know, it's not simply enough to, um, you know, join particular initiatives and, uh, and, and, and purchase carbon offsets and recs. Ultimately, at the end of the day, right, um, transportation is now the largest source of emissions that there is, at least in the U.S. That's not quite true globally. I think it's the second largest source globally. But in the U.S., it's the largest source. And if we want to actually make uh, a long-term impact on the climate problem, we need to help the transportation ecosystem to solve its emissions problem, <clears throat> which has been a stubbornly difficult problem um, to solve, right? There still are many emissions coming from, from that sector. So um, we always knew that we would need to um, create a very detailed electrification plan and a commitment. And I think it was really the COVID uh, crisis that accelerated that conversation internally because we we saw the, uh, the effects economically. Um, we knew that there was a movement to build back better from this crisis, that uh, we, we don't, didn't want to, in a sense, waste a crisis and kind of build back exactly as we were before. We have to, you know, we and all of society have to look towards the future and say, okay, there's a lot of work that needs to be done here. Now's our chance to come out of this crisis even better. And so, that made the, the conversation happen more quickly, and we were able to decide internally that, that this is the time to step up and create this goal. Um, so that's what we did. You know, I think I've heard it said more than once that a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. So I appreciate you and the company looking to building back better. 
I know one of the um, items that Mr. Zimmer said in the, the call was making the financial issue a no-brainer. You know, some of the questions around drivers being able to afford electric vehicles. Can you share some of the ideas around that? Absolutely. So the issue, of course, with electric vehicles right now, and, and the reason why they're not widespread today, right? They're only a small percentage of vehicles on the road currently is basically because of two challenges. The first is the upfront cost of the vehicle being more than a gasoline-powered vehicles today. And the good news is uh, that battery prices, which is what is driving that cost difference, have come down dramatically, something like 90% over the last 10 years. So the, the trend is going in the right direction. It's not there yet. So it's still more expensive today to buy uh, an EV. And the other challenge, of course, is the charging infrastructure. So we need a lot more charging infrastructure, both uh, within and, and, and around cities and along interstate highways, but also at people's places of residence, um, because charging your vehicle overnight can uh, typically be cheaper than trying to, to juice it up you know, in a very short time frame as uh, the so-called fast charging, which tends to be more expensive. Um, but getting back to the question about, you know, what does this mean for, for drivers and kind of their, their costs and their earnings? Um, basically, EVs have many fewer moving parts than a gasoline vehicle, right? There's no, there's no combustion engine. It's, it's just a battery, basically. So what that means is there are fewer things that can break, and therefore, the maintenance costs are cheaper. And when you pair that with the fact that in most places, electricity uh, is cheaper than gasoline, what you're talking about is people saving money, drivers who are saving money on their operating expenses when they drive an EV. So it's kind of a balance between today having to pay a little bit more, or in some cases a lot more upfront for the electric vehicle just to get it in the first place, but then you pay back that upfront cost over time um, with the savings from fueling and maintenance. And right now there are some drivers who, particularly those who drive very high amounts of mileage, in a year, who uh, that value proposition actually would work out for them already today, even at the level of battery costs that we that we currently have. But if we want to get to the point where every driver, even those who may drive, you know, a relatively smaller number of miles per year, uh, if we want the economics to work out for them, we have to keep doing everything we can to bring down, in particular, the upfront cost of the vehicle, but also continue to bring electricity prices down for charging uh, as well. So. Our long-term plan here for how we're going to reach this goal is to sort of do everything we can to kind of reach out and grab that cost curve and pull it down a little bit faster than it would happen on its own. And we can do that in a number of ways, both by um, you know, uh, discussing, negotiating with auto manufacturers to, uh, to you know, send. I mean, basically, we are sending a market signal in case anybody you know, didn't notice, we are sending a market signal to the auto manufacturers to say, hey, we've got all these drivers on the platform. We want to help them to electrify their cars. And we want to sort of aggregate that demand and, and lay it at your feet. And then you need to deliver EVs that are uh, both have better battery ranges and that are cheaper. Um, so we are already starting those conversations and we are going to continue having those conversations to help to, uh, to increase the demand, which therefore increases the supply, which therefore brings the cost down. Uh, we also have already uh, negotiated uh, deals with two charging providers, EVgo and Electrify America, which are charging providers that operate nationally in the U.S. 
those partnerships, of course, will need to be expanded to eventually you know, cover every driver on the platform. But it's through those kinds of uh, those kinds of negotiations, those kinds of partnerships, that we will continue to bring the costs down to make this affordable for drivers. And we believe that we're going to get to the point where we will make EV driving so cost effective and so much more compelling than driving a gasoline car that drivers are going to be jumping out of their seats to drive an EV. And they'll say, why would I ever drive a gasoline vehicle again? Even if they don't care about the climate, even if they don't care about the environment, it, it won't matter because the economics will speak for themselves and every driver will want to do it because they, they will be doing better financially by driving an EV. So I think you're sending even more than a market signal. And I'll tell you why. Recently had the had the pleasure of speaking to the CEO of a company called Fermata Energy. I don't know if you're aware of them or not. Um, essentially, they have a V to X model, vehicle to X. But a lot of what they're focused on is vehicle to grid. I also think there's a revenue a revenue opportunity there. Have you discussed anything like that with your drivers or amongst the leadership team? I love this question because this gets into like the really fun and admittedly wonky <laughs> side of things. Um, <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> yes, we love thinking about this. So I think, you know, at the highest level, absolutely. This is, the, this is exactly the right idea. I think it's a little ways down the road still, um, you know, to, to be able to have a, a meaningful um, interaction with the electricity grid, you know, I mean, just look at what's happening to, you know, right now in California, these rotating power outages, because there's insufficient capacity on the grid, or at least that's what the ISO is claiming. Um, if, if you had, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, you know, eventually maybe millions of vehicles, who knows, um, that aggregate amount of electricity capacity absolutely could support the grid. It could support more renewable energy, right? Because wind and solar, uh, by their nature, tend to be intermittent and somewhat less predictable, obviously, than fossil generation. But it, with, with a, a massive amount of EVs that can connect to the grid and that can either charge or discharge, uh, that can support more renewables penetration. So there's a virtuous cycle here. And it, that's the kind of thing that gets me really excited because before I was at Lyft, um, my previous role was at Google, where I worked on renewable energy supply for the data centers. And I was one of the one of the folks who helped bring Google to 100% renewable for the first time in 2017. And so in this future vision of Lyft, I just, I love the idea of merging these two worlds together. You know, renewable energy, electric vehicles, they come together, we support the grid, we make the grid cleaner. Um, these are all things that I'm, I'm really excited about. And I think, I think certainly are in the long-term vision. But the first thing we have to do is we have to solve you know, the barriers to EVs in the first place. And, and then that gets back to these, this question of vehicle cost and charging access. So we've got to do all that first. But once we do that, I think we're off to the races and we can then start to get into these really cool um, and exciting ideas. I think so too, especially from a revenue perspective, the idea of a driver being able to earn, you know, multiple streams of income, I think would solve a lot of challenges that you kind of mentioned earlier in the conversation that they're going through right now, especially during COVID. So appreciate you um, sharing that. For those that might not be aware, can you share what Green Mode is? The you know, I think it began in 2019. Green Mode is a pilot program that we are currently testing in Seattle and Portland, Oregon. And what it is basically, uh, when, when you open up the Lyft app, uh, there are different what we call modes that you can select. You can select, uh, you know, a, a classic ride. You can select a bigger vehicle if you have a larger group of people, for example. And Green Mode is is another one of those modes. 
And what it lets you do is select or request a cleaner vehicle, which today means a hybrid or an EV. Could could be one, could be the other. Uh, currently, um, you know, the uptake has been encouraging. Uh, we are seeing people using green mode. Um, there's there's more learnings we need to do, uh, and we're sort of continually evaluating when and where we may be able to expand it. And uh, and for now, it's it's available in those two markets. So how has the feedback been from riders and drivers? I think generally good. I mean, drivers uh, are, are excited about it because it's a kind of, in a way, it's sort of an, an ambassadorship moment for them where they can, you know, talk to an enthusiastic rider, right? I mean, remember, the rider specifically requested the clean vehicle. So it's kind of a, a match made in heaven in a way where they can kind of geek out, you know, about about the car and kind of how cool it is and, and how it reduces emissions, um, so I think it's been a positive experience for both drivers and riders. Um, in some cases, there can be higher tipping, not necessarily all the time, but but sometimes that can be the case. Um, so I think it's been very positive, and we're we're looking forward to you know the future when we may be able to expand it further. Thank you. Now earlier you also mentioned working for Google, and the crux of our conversation is the why behind what you do. So you mentioned going to school and getting involved with energy and renewable energy and sustainability. What drove you to do that? What what made you consider going down that, I guess, not even career route, but education route? You know, the environment has always been something that I've cared a lot about ever since I was a kid. And I remember uh, even in elementary school, we had, you know, these assemblies, I think they were called once a month. And we had the local recycling company come in and they taught us uh, a little song and dance they called the Recycle Boogie. And... Um, <laughs> I don't know if I could replicate it for you right now. It's been a long time. But, uh, you know, that, that was my first sort of taste of, of you know, th- these concepts and these issues. And I, I remember running home and sort of t- declaring to my parents that we must get recycling bins. We, we didn't actually, you know, in the, in the early to mid 80s, we didn't even have recycling bins. I mean, it's kind of hard to believe that, you know, there was a time when that wasn't true. But, but we didn't. And I sort of demanded that we had to get these and, and we got them. And, you know, now we were a household that recycled. Um, so even from an early age, I was always really interested in this. And, you know, in college, um, I studied physics for my my undergrad degree, but I did this sort of crossover research project between the physics department and the geology department, where I studied the potential for the college to build its own wind farm uh, on a ridge that was near the campus. Um, and that was a really exciting project. And I, I kind of... Um, you know, cut, cut my teeth on that and decided renewable energy and, and the environment were was an issue I wanted to really go deep in. So after I finished up my stint in Morocco, I went to grad school at UC Berkeley in the energy and resources program there, where I studied electric vehicles, actually. So even by the time I was in grad school, I had already been, you know, doing some renewable energy, some electric vehicle work. Uh, and I was fortunate enough to get the role at Google where I could, you know, really uh, dive in in a big way and kind of learn how how do you work inside of a really big organization to make change, make positive change environmentally. Um, and, you know, from that point forward, I was, I was sort of hooked and I've, I've been in the industry ever since. Now, there's something I want to speak about. It's your perspective. I was doing some research on you and I came across this theme and I'm going to quote exactly from another interview you gave. It said, I didn't know what I wanted to do for a job, but I thought if I could do well in my physics and other classes, those skills would be useful for a wide range of jobs. And then later on, you go to explain that you never chose what you were going to study. 
based on a career. Can you share some insight into that thinking? Definitely. I, I think, yeah, I, I think I would say the same thing again today. Um, I, you know, I've always been someone who has pursued what I've, what I'm excited about, what I'm passionate about. Um, you know, in college, I, I got really excited about my physics classes and, and my math classes and my geology classes. And I, I went really deep and, you know, did my own uh, senior research project, but I, you know, put my own twist on it. I didn't just, you know, uh, well, I shouldn't say just, but I, I, I didn't work on one of my professors, you know, ongoing research projects I said, no, I want to do my own thing. I want to study wind power. Um, I'm going to invent this, you know, my own project. Um, and I didn't do that with a particular career objective in mind. I didn't say, oh, I'm going to one day work for Google. I'm going to one day work for Lyft. Um, I, I was excited about the concepts I was excited to learn. And, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to be able to then translate that experience into these roles that I've had. Uh, but I think overall, you know, at least in my experience, by focusing on what you're passionate about and what you care about, you know, good things will come, um, at least in, in most cases. Uh, so, you know, that, that mindset has served me well. And, and I think it's something that um, others can consider too. So what about the way you view life allows you to have the confidence to go down, I'm going to say, you know, the less worn path where you're carving your own path. And the reason I'm asking is because over the last three or four months, we've had a lot of college students tuning into the podcast and I've been getting emails from college students also. So if anyone's on this path right now, perhaps considering, you know, entering into a passion project or something they're passionate about, I think, you know, hearing from you would really help them. I think I would say a couple of things, you know, from, perhaps just from my own life experience, um, in a way, like, in a way, I think I, I've sometimes been a little bit different from my friends and peers in the sense that, you know, I went to a bilingual school growing up. Um, I am actually adopted. Um, so I think I've, I've always felt that I, you know, perhaps those those things gave me some leeway to, to kind of not necessarily feel like I had to do one specific thing that I kind of already had these different, different aspects of my personality and, and of my life going on. Um, I don't know. I'm just sort of, I'm just hypothesizing here what, what my, you know, eight year old self might've said, but um, I think that, you know, feeling that way and, and knowing that I had the support of my parents uh, and my family to, pursue the things that I was passionate about. You know, I, they, they didn't push me in any particular direction. I just wanted to support my interests, uh, help me to sort of, I don't know, yeah, maybe, maybe create that confidence and feel that I would be able to try things out. And if, you know, if I like something great, if I didn't, that's okay too. Sam, I really appreciate you sharing that. I'm going to uh, switch gears here and ask you, you know, you've been involved in the, let's call it broadly, energy, renewable, sustainable space for about 12 to 14 years, what are some of the valuable lessons that you'd say you've learned along the way? I think one thing that I've really learned is the importance of policy in addition to the technical issues. You know, I, I think in grad school, I spent, uh, well, undergrad and, and grad school, I spent a lot of time, you know, learning the history, learning the techniques, uh, you know, modeling and the physics behind wind power production and, and all sorts of things. And I was able to use a lot of those skills 
particularly in my role at Google, uh, to you know analyze the economics of a potential renewable energy deal that you know Google might have been considering. Particularly coming to Lyft, I've uh, I actually now sit within the policy team, which I think is a really interesting place to be, and it and it's a first for me. I hadn't been you know as deeply in the policy world prior to coming to Lyft, but I think that it's actually very important because particularly for a technology like electric vehicles, and and I think the same could be said about renewable energy, right? these are new technologies that have not finished coming down the cost curve. They haven't existed for more than 100 years like you know oil production has. So that means that policy is very important to sort of guide these technologies to, uh, to their ability to enter into the market um, and compete with everything else that's in the market. And on the flip side, you know, bad policy or, or slightly less well-conceived policy that may be hindering that from happening. Uh, I mean, just look at some of the examples of, you know, uh, electric vehicle incentives that exist, right? In California today, there's an electric vehicle rebate program that the state runs, and it's basically not available to high mileage, uh, you know, uh, company-based applications. It's only available to private individuals. And so, you know, perhaps not surprisingly, the only people who are using it are, you know, wealthier and whiter uh, people buying expensive Teslas in Los Altos, you know, basically, um, rather than helping to get this technology into the hands of lower income drivers who are driving many more miles per year and hence could be reducing many more emissions per year than somebody who might just own that car privately for their own personal use. Um, you know, it's much harder to use that program to, uh, to deploy electric vehicles in, in that much more equitable and much more environmentally friendly way. Um, and so that's an example of policy that may have made sense when it first was created. But now, you know, I think we can see that there's many reasons why we would want that policy to be open to lots of different applications, not just private vehicle ownership. So, um, so, you know, I, I've really learned a lot already in my couple of years at Lyft. And I think that, uh, one of the big pillars of our plan to achieve our hundred percent EV goal is policy. Uh, we, we need to work, uh, in, in the States and, and with local, you know, local and regional governments as well. And hopefully, uh, federally at some point as well to make better policy, which can help this technology to get deployed much more quickly than it would otherwise, because frankly, I think as we all know, climate uh, is a, a serious and immediate crisis that we need to address as quickly as we can. We don't have time to wait for that battery cost curve to come down, you know, over 10 years. We've got to do it in a couple of years if we're going to have any hope of, of solving the climate challenge. Staying with policy, usually I ask my guests about what the future holds for a particular organization, but I know the size of Lyft, it's hard for one person. So I'm going to change the question a little bit for you. Magic wand, and let's take policy into account too. Magic wand, it's 2030. What are some of the changes perhaps in policy or from, you know, from overall standpoint that you'd like to see take place in the United States regarding climate change? Well, I think, you know, channeling our, our friends, the economists, I mean, they would tell us that the most cost-effective way to deal with climate change is to put a price on carbon, you know, tax the thing or, or make the thing that you don't like 
more expensive to incentivize less use of that thing and use the money to incentivize the good things that you do want. Um, it's not too difficult of a concept. And, you know, unfortunately, it, it can be challenging uh, to get those kinds of policies passed. But I think <clears throat> that's probably the, the single most effective thing. In the absence of that, there are many other things we can do uh, that are much more targeted. And of course, uh, we've seen all sorts of proposals coming out, you know, or that have come out during this very long campaign season that we've been that we've been uh, <laughs> uh, observing, I guess, uh, for the last you know year and a half almost. Um, but I think there are very specific things like you know take the current federal tax credit for electric vehicles and turn it into something that's more usable. For example, you know a tax credit is 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 a hard thing to use because a you have to own the vehicle which a ride-sharing company actually doesn't own any vehicles, so it's not usable in that way. Uh, you have to have tax liability to, to use the tax credit against, and you know, as everybody knows, ride-sharing is not yet profitable, so there is no tax liability. Uh, so basically, this, this tax credit, you know, as, as well-intentioned as it may be, it's basically unusable for the application that we're talking about. Um, so both there's some kind of more global things we can do and there are much more targeted things we can do around specific programs. Um, helping to deploy more charging infrastructure, for example, is, is very important. I mean, look, look at, look at China, right? I mean, they obviously have a very different form of government and probably there are a lot of things about, about that that we wouldn't want. But one thing that they've been able to do is just to sort of declare we are going to electrify. And if you look at a place like Shen, uh, Shenzhen, they now have tens of thousands of electric taxis ubiquitous charging all around the city. And that was just the government said, you know what, we're gonna do this. And, and they did it. Um, so, you know, perhaps we can take some lessons and apply, you know, the good things about what they did there. And maybe we can put aside the, the things that aren't so good. Um, but we can emulate what works and ignore what doesn't work. And I think we can make a lot of progress if we do that. So staying on the theme of lessons, my last question is, if you could share some advice or words of wisdom with the audience, what would it be? So maybe picking back up the theme from earlier in the conversation about following what you're passionate about, I also think there's not any one way in to the sustainability world, uh, so to speak. You know, I have a particular set of, you know, experiences and background. Uh, I have a undergrad degree in the sciences. I have a graduate degree, a master's in, in environmental and energy uh, issues. But other people on my team here and at Google, other people I've worked with come from all sorts of different backgrounds. We have some people who studied law. We have some people who went to business school. We have some people who only have an undergraduate degree. Um, people who studied forestry. You, know, you, you can come at this from all sorts of different directions. And we need people from all across the, the kind of professional spectrum to be working on these issues, whether that's marketing, right? Because people have to know and, and understand uh, what this is about. It's communications, it's legal, there are contracts involved. So I think that whatever your particular set of skills and background um, and interests may be, you can still get into the sustainability world and fill you know, a very important piece of that world because to really solve this problem, all of us, all society has to come together and we have to attack this from multiple angles. Sam, that advice resonates very strongly with me we are coming up on about 90 shows right now, 90 episodes. And one of the goals of the show is to shine a light on 
all the different, as you put it, entry points or opportunities where people can come on board or get engaged, regardless of their prior professional background, especially if they want to make a difference. So I really appreciate you sharing that. You know, I really enjoyed speaking with you. Is there anything that I should have asked you that I didn't? Suraj, I think the, the final takeaway here is that, you know, as much as Lyft has stepped up and, and raised the bar on ourselves to set this ambitious goal to reach 100% electric vehicles, we definitely can't do it alone. And it's going to take partnerships and rolling up our sleeves and, and really working together, both with other companies like charging providers and auto manufacturers, as well as with government entities, uh, policymakers, regulators, and the nonprofit sector. Uh, you know, we worked with Environmental Defense Fund, to, who helped us you know, figure out the, the details of our electrification plan. So um, I'm looking forward to finding those synergies as we go forward. And I think really it has to be together that we solve this problem because any one actor alone cannot, uh, cannot solve climate change by themselves. So we will, uh, we'll see where, where we go in the next couple of years, but it's, we're going to be driving in that direction of 100%. And, and we're looking forward to being able to show some concrete steps uh, very soon in that direction. Well, Sam, that reminds me of the um, old Native American phrase, we are the ones we've been waiting for. I really appreciate you sharing that last piece. And I wish you all the best with the audacious goals that Lyft has set. And I look forward to catching up with you again soon. Thanks, Raj. It's been really nice to chat with you. Thank you, Sam. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email, btu at nexuspmg.com or contact me via our website, nexuspmg.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the clean tech, green tech sectors. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production.